Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right. Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to use one of the ones that's in the the little rack in front of you. You can keep that Bible if you don't own a Bible. We've been journeying through Romans for quite some time now, and we're at the beginning of chapter 10, having just finished one of the most challenging chapters, I think, in all of the Bible, which is Romans 9. We find ourselves now in Romans 10. If you're visiting with us for the first time, I I realize you're jumping right in the middle of a long series through this letter to Romans I hope that you'll, I I trust that you'll be able to catch up to the context of where we are this morning. So just kind of hold on, and Lord willing, it'll be be clear to you. Let me read the text and pray, and then we're going to work through the first four verses of Romans chapter 10. The Apostle Paul writes, Romans 10, starting in verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes." Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand this this text. Father, we we thank you for your word, which you've written, which is exactly what you want it to be. It's inspired divinely by you. It's without error. It's authoritative. It sits in judgment over us. We don't sit in judgment over it. So as we come to your word now, Lord, we pray what we know not, you would teach us what we have not and truly need. We pray that you would grant us what we are not. We plead with you to make us by the power of your word and your spirit working together to bring about your will for this day in our lives. For my friends in this room who don't know Christ as their Savior and King and Lord, I pray God, that you would do what only you can do and make them alive so that they can see Jesus and trust in him. And for my brothers and sisters who do know him, I pray that you would stir our affections afresh afresh for Christ, that we would worship him more passionately, and that we would love you more dearly and others as a result of our time together. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What's the biggest, the biggest question you're facing? What's the biggest challenge that is before your life right now, according to your estimation? Maybe it's some family situation, a child, a spouse, an aging parent. Maybe it's a a job difficulty, maybe it's a promotion, maybe it's financial stress, maybe it's some health concern. All those things may be very, very valid and very real to us, and I'm not in any way minimizing anything that anybody in this room is facing. But I will propose 
that the greatest question that every person in this room is facing, in fact, the greatest question that all people everywhere face is how can we be reconciled to a holy God? In fact, I think that's the question of Romans. How can we, as fallen sinful people, be reconciled to God who alone is holy and righteous? There is this gap between the righteousness of God and the fallenness of every person who has ever lived that is impassable for human beings in and of themselves. That's the dilemma of mankind and that's the dilemma of Romans. So to answer that question, I I think just to catch us up to where we are in Romans 10, and I think Romans 10 verses 1 through 4, Paul is, he is reminding us of the answer to this question. Now much of what Paul says in, in Romans 10 verses 1 through 4 is a kind of summary of what we have been dwelling on for the past year and a half as we've been going through Romans. But it is good for us to be reminded of things. You know, I, there are football games that I have watched three or four times. There's this new television channel where you can actually watch classic games. And I've watched a few games multiple times. I've watched the Texas-USC National Championship game of 2005 where Vince Young scores the game-winning touchdown on fourth and six to break the hearts of USC Trojan fans. I've watched it probably four times. And it always ends the same way, by the way. <laughs> Much to my chagrin. We, we watch things over and over again. We rehearse things. There's not a wonderful musician in the world that hasn't played the same piece over and over and over and over again. There's not anybody preparing for anything. There's not a soldier in this room who has not gone to the range and done the same thing over and over and over and over again. Rehearsing things is how we, we learn things and we embed them in our soul. And Paul is rehearsing for us here really the good news of what it means to be justified, to be right before a holy God. And to understand why he's at the place that he's at in Romans 10, we have to understand, just again summarizing the whole message of Romans in the first three chapters, Paul is reminding us that all humanity, every single one of us in this room, whether we come from a religious background or an irreligious background, regardless of our background, we are all fallen and we stand, as he, as he says in the midpoint of Romans chapter 3, that we all stand without excuse, before God, fallen, sinful, unable to answer back to God with any righteousness of our own. But the good news of the gospel is that God has put Jesus, God the Son, God in the flesh, God the Son, the infinite second person of the Trinity, who has always existed, who in fact created the world, he became a man like us and he then lived a perfect life where all of us have sinned and disobeyed God. Jesus has completely obeyed God perfectly, perfectly obeying his law and then laid down his life, his human life as a sacrifice on the cross to bear, to to receive the wrath of God against the sin of his people. So instead of punishing his people on the cross, God the Father punishes his son. 
And Jesus, because he's not just a, a good human, but because he is the infinitely holy son of God, has enough righteousness to atone for all the sin of all those who would ever trust in him. And on the cross, Jesus becomes a propitiation, a wrath-absorbing sacrifice that changes the wrath and justice of God, which is righteously on our head. He absorbs it and turns it into grace and favor for all those who would believe. And then how are we to access that work of Christ for our life, well, Paul answers that in Romans chapter 3, the second half, and then in Romans chapter 4. He says it's not by works, it's not by people being good enough in and of themselves to be candidates to receive what Jesus has done for them, but it's because of faith, only because of faith, not works. And even that faith that God gives a person to believe in Jesus and then receive the benefits of his life, death, and resurrection is a gift. And that faith then produces peace with God and reconciliation with God. That's Romans chapter 5. And by the way, then we might be wondering this amazing grace. Well, if that's grace, if it doesn't really matter what I do, and it's all because of grace in Christ through faith, then I can live however I want, right? And Paul says, no, in Romans chapter 6, that you have been united with Christ by faith and now you have a new master, whereas once sin reigned in your life, now Christ reigns in your life and you have a new master. So we then live for his glory because we live in accordance to his commands in ever-increasing ways. That's called sanctification. Nobody's perfect, but that's called sanctification. That's Romans chapter 6 and 7. And then we see Romans chapter 8, which is this beautiful description of the whole Christian life about how we have received Christ, and there is therefore no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we're going to make it all the way home. Even though this life is going to be hard, there's no separation for those that are in Christ. In Romans chapter 9, did you guys know that we spent a little bit of time in Romans chapter 9 for the past couple, couple weeks? Maybe the most difficult question of all, the question of how does anybody, how does anybody get to be part of this, this people that God has made for himself, not by their works, not because of any ethnicity, not because of anything that they do, but simply because of God's free and sovereign choice, his purpose of election. In other words, if you're a Christian, God may have used means to make you a Christian. He may have put you into a Christian family. He may have sent a friend your way to share the gospel with you. All these things are part of how God brings about his end, but if you're a Christian, it's not because God looked and saw anything in you that he wanted to cooperate with. It's simply because of his sovereign, free, electing choice to love you simply because he loved you. And that's Paul's argument in, in Romans chapter 9. And now in Romans chapter 10, as we're going to progress, he's going to show us how God does use means. Now this great, this great man-humbling, God-exalting news of the gospel does not separate the means by which God uses to bring people to that faith in Jesus, which he alone can give. And we're going to see that when we get into verses 5 and following through the end of the chapter in the coming weeks. But here in verses 1 through 4, Paul is summarizing summarizing how anybody is made right with God. And so let's, let's just work our way through this text and then, and then apply this text to our lives. He says in verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. So who is the them that he's referring to? Well, clearly I think the them that he's referring to is ethnic Jews. So remember, in Romans chapter 9, Paul was taking up this question 
of how, because remember his audience in Romans is to the Roman Christians, the, the Christians who are in Rome. And that is a mixed group of people. It's not only ethnic Jews who have become Christians, but it's primarily, probably the majority of the church in Rome are Gentiles, Romans, people from all over the Roman Empire that are in Rome that have come to faith in Jesus. And so his audience in the letter of Romans to the Roman church is very likely predominantly Gentiles. And he's promising them these amazing, stupendous promises about how God will save you and he will, when he saves you, bring you all the way home. You can be assured of that. And so the question of Romans 9 that these Gentile believers in Jesus, Christians in the first century in Rome, may be having is, well, wait a minute, as we look back and we read the Old Testament, it seems like most of what God promised to his ethnic people, the Jews, hasn't been brought about. It seems like most of them have rejected Jesus. So if God's word seems to have failed with them, how can it be trusted for us? And Paul's, as we have been looking at in Romans chapter 9, his point was, no, 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 don't, you misunderstand who Israel is. Israel was never just about ethnicity, but Israel, true Israel, spiritual Israel, is the distinction he makes in Romans chapter 9, is about faith. And so now what it means to be a true Jew or a true Israelite has nothing to do with your descendants, your ethnic identity, but with your faith in Christ. So that's... By the way, just a little aside here, that should have major ramifications for how we view people and culture. That means that if you're a believer in Jesus, regardless of what your ethnicity is, you are, Paul calls you, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, an, a true Jew. You, you, you then are one of God's people. And that, that, that's what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 9. And so then in Romans chapter 10, he's not forgetting the Jewish people. And he's saying here about them that my heart's desire and prayer for God is that they be saved. And we're going to see when we get to Romans chapter 11, sometime likely in 2019, that he does come back around and he saves a great multitude of Jews, I think, whether it's through the centuries or on in some future event. But I want you to notice here before we move on to verse 2, notice Paul's understanding of how God's sovereignty interacts with human responsibility. Okay, in verse 1 of Romans chapter 10, Paul has just said, my heart's desire and prayer is that my countrymen, the ethnic Jews, because remember Paul was an ethnic Jew, is that they be saved. Many of them have rejected Christ. And my heart's desire, and in fact, I'm praying that they be saved. Well, let's, let's combine Paul's heart in Romans 10 verse 1 with what he has just said in Romans chapter 9 verse 16. What does he say about salvation in Romans chapter 9 and verse 16? He says, just to rehearse, flip one page over, so then it... And that it, I think, means right standing salvation before a holy God. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So the same Paul who writes that salvation is solely from God, it doesn't depend on anything in the creature, is the same Paul who writes just a few verses later in Romans chapter 10, verse 1, that my heart's desire and prayer to God is that they be saved. Notice this, friends. Apparently, Paul's understanding 
of the doctrine of election did not produce in him a fatalistic view about the salvation of any person that he loved. That's really, really, really important. God uses means to bring about his sovereign ends. And we're the creature, we're not the created. We don't get to stand outside of the bubble of creation and observe how God may or may not do things. We live inside of it. So we get these, what seem to be to us, contradictory truths where God is utterly sovereign, but yet we are responsible. And he uses our prayers to be the means by which he brings about his sovereign ends. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Verse 10, look what he concludes about his ministry in light of the utter sovereignty of God. Verse 10, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. (laughs) Did you catch that last sentence? Paul is saying that God has a people, and the only way that God brings those people to faith in himself is through the necessary means of my ministry. So that means that there are people that will or will not be Believers in Jesus, depending on whether or not we are faithful. Does it ultimately depend on God? Of course. But God has fastened himself to the means of the preaching and teaching and sharing of the gospel to be the only way that he brings about the salvation of all those that he has set his affection on in eternity past. Am I making any Reformed theologians in here nervous? You should be. It should be a, a kind of tension that pushes on us to not be merely doctrinal confessors, but to be people that let the sovereignty of God not cause us to be fatalistic, but it should cause us to fuel our love for people because we believe that God is able to save them. Just, just, a, a, just a quick question or two of application to us. What impact does our understanding of God's election have on our heart for other people? What what impact does it have for for us? Do we just have doctrinal categories? Are Are we proud of some sort of historical doctrinal stance? Friends, what good is it if, if it doesn't produce in us the heart that it produced in Paul in Romans chapter 10, verse 1. And if you find yourself with a kind of coldness, a kind of, a kind of doctrinal coldness and pride saying, oh, I, I have arrived at some higher form of theological understanding than the average sort of you know, pragmatic American church out there, but it doesn't produce in you a, a brokenheartedness, then I think like right now we need to repent. Lord, give us your heart for people. And churches like us that care deeply about doctrine always need to be pushed on because it's so easy to be comfortable with correct doctrine and not to have a heart of evangelism for people who God is saving. 
And the good news of this is that God saves all types of people. People that seem far from God, not likely candidates, not people that come from the right background or whatever. God is pleased to do whatever he wants to bring the most glory to himself. And this should, man, just think about your own salvation. If, 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 if the doctrine of God's election doesn't produce a kind of compassion in you for other people and a tremendous amount of humility about your own salvation, then you don't truly understand it. <laughs> what was in you that God saw? You, it's not like he said, oh man, that person, yeah. No, simply because of his grace. He loves you because he loves you. And if you get that, we may have more assurance when we see that because if he loves us, not because of anything in us, that means he won't cast us off because of anything in us that hasn't quite got to where it should be. Come on, the, the doctrine of election and the doctrine of assurance are bound together. Verse 2. There's more time than I wanted to spend on one, but you got me going. For I bear witness with them... For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Man, come on. What he's saying there is that there is this zeal in ethnic Old Testament Israel. And this zeal, in a way, kind of produced a pride in them that we'll see in verse 3 that, that actually wasn't informed by real knowledge. It's, it's, isn't it possible to be really zealous for something, but just be on completely the wrong track. I mean, we see examples of that all, all over the world. Zeal without knowledge can be a very deadly thing. Verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So this is, again, a commentary on the failure of the majority of Old Testament Israel to come to faith in Christ. So he says they were ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. So what's the context here? How were the Jews ignorant of the righteousness of God? It's not that they didn't understand that God was righteous. They clearly understood that God in himself was righteousness. They understood that was an attribute of God. But they didn't understand the answer to the question that we started off with of how a person can be reconciled to that righteous God. They didn't see that the Old Testament law that God gave the nation of Israel was never meant to produce a righteousness in them but it was meant to highlight, illuminate, display their unrighteousness so that it would point them outside of themselves to Christ. That, that's what they missed. And what did it do? How then did they seek to establish their own righteousness? What was the consequence? They sought to obtain a self-righteousness or a right standing with God who alone is holy by their own observance to the law, by their own sort of obedience, by their own religious, think of it this way, by their own religious performance. So instead of letting the, the perfect law of God create in them a kind of despair of themselves 
it created in them a kind of pride. Listen to what Jesus says to, to, the, to this group of Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. He's speaking to some Pharisees and scribes. And he, I mean, he just upbraids them. Listen, listen to this. Matthew chapter 23, starting in verse 1, he says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So Moses is the one in the Old Testament who God gave the law to. So he's the giver of the law, you know, the Ten Commandments and, and Mount Sinai and all of the other laws that flow out of that. So when he says that they sit on Moses' seat, kind of like the, the judge, the lawgiver, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Do you see the, the, ax, the opposite of what the law was intended to produce, which is humility, was actually producing pride in God's people in the Old Testament. So skip to verse 23 of, of Matthew 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. So they were like, they were so religious that they were like tithing off of their, their kitchen pantry spice rack. And they were developing pride in that. And yet this religious performance wasn't producing in them mercy towards other people who, who couldn't obey God in the ways that they were interpreting were the only ways to obey God. So, so they're... they're in quotes here, obedience to God was actually producing in them pride rather than compassion and humility. You've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Yikes. Yikes. So they were obeying some of the law, and they were amplifying that, but in other ways, they were completely disobeying the law. And what does James 2 say in the New Testament? James 2 verse 10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. And Jesus is critiquing their self-righteousness here. And it's exactly what Paul is saying in verse 3. He says they were ignorant 
of the righteousness of God, and it's not the attribute of God, but it's the righteousness that God grants. It's this law, this Old Testament law that's actually pointing to Christ, and they didn't see that, and so they sought to establish their own righteousness, and it produced in them this, this pride. Well, let's not stare in judgment over the Pharisees and the Old Testament Jew. Let's apply it to ourselves, friends. As we were reading that, were you thinking of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Friends, the the arrow, the sword of the Spirit of God and the Word of God is pointed at us as well. We, We do this same thing, don't we? In fact, many of you are here today in this church because you were at another church maybe where there was some legalistic culture and you've been burned by a kind of hyper-religious atmosphere where people seemed to portray a kind of righteousness that didn't produce any humility or dependence in them, but it produced a kind of self-glorification. Has has anybody, you know what I'm talking about? And don't we do the same? We're so prone to this. Friends, we seek to establish our own righteousness as well. The challenge of listing examples is that if I don't hit the nail on the head specifically for you, then sometimes we'll just feel, oh, yeah, 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 he's talking about the other guy. (laughs) So just consider your life. We, we, We all are prone to justify ourselves. Even those of us who have known Jesus for a long time and are trusting in his finished work, we are prone to justify ourselves. Maybe we're proud of our political point of view. Maybe we're proud that we are in some particular social demographic or we have some understanding. Maybe even our under, this is the kind of strangest irony of, us, of all. Maybe our good understanding of doctrine produces in us a kind of self-righteousness towards other Christians who don't share that understanding. Isn't, isn't that silly? But it, but but it, it's, it's so insidious, it's so subversive that all of us are prone to this. And, and Paul is reminding us that the only way that we are made righteous is by what Christ has done. And we need to be reminded of that. Why? Why? I gotta start hitting like this because when I hit like this, my knuckles, God, my, I've been, my, my hand's been sore all week from a couple weeks ago. Why do we need to be reminded of this? Because we all suffer from that same dreaded condition, even those of us that know Jesus and have known him for a long time, and it's called gospel amnesia. Don't we forget? We have gospel amnesia, and we need to be reminded of this. Because we are so prone to be ignorant of the righteousness of God. And friends, just just a little pastoral note here before we move on to verse 4. It says that they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. They had, they had the law of God, but they just didn't see it. it where does the blame lie there? Maybe the teachers of Israel and their pride. What's the application to our day? I mean, we live in a city that is full of churches, but it does seem like the light of the gospel at times is kind of dim in our culture and even in our city. How are we ignorant of the righteousness of God? How are we ignorant of the message of the gospel? Friends, 
I think some of it has, a lot of it has to do with just the weakness of American carnal, self-indulgent church culture. I think we have turned the Bible, which is ultimately a message about God, and we have siphoned it down to pragmatic tips about how we can have a better life. And that is a complete paradigm shift. And when, when churches give into that and they emphasize self-improvement and pragmatism and they do everything they can to cater to everybody to make them happy and all these things, friends, what ultimately happens is it turns everything upside down and it makes everything about the creature rather than the creator and we produce a kind of idolatrous culture which blinds people to their greatest need. Friends, I'm not saying that it's not important to learn how to, you know, navigate through life better and do all these things. Those things can be very, very important, but they have to be subordinated to the greatest question, which is how can a sinner be made right before a holy God? So just a little pastoral word, and I, I, like, I really, I don't want to be like the grumpy Mr. Wilson on Dennis the Menace. I don't want to be watering my lawn with my socks pulled up to my knees and my shorts saying, get off my lawn, kids. I don't want to be that guy. But I realize that we have lots of people, this is a transient church, military people coming and going, just a pastoral word, a pastoral word about churches, if you don't settle this one and you look at others. Friends, find a church that will preach through the Bible, that will primarily spend most of their time just preaching through books of the Bible. That's called expositional preaching. It means that they're trying to expose the truth of God's word to God's people. It means that they won't skip over things. And it means that, I think generally, this isn't 100%, but generally it means that the priority of that particular fellowship and church is to think about the centrality of God in all things rather than to see God as a kind of dispenser of wisdom for this life. And so when when churches, and there's lots of churches that have lots of people in them that It will do these kind of rotational series where they'll preach like a a five-week series on relationships and a five-week series on managing money and a five-week series on anger and a five-week series on self. All these things, I'm not saying that there's not some good happening there, but friends, what it does over time is it tweaks, it inverts, it shifts the paradigm to see God as a kind of deity that dispenses pragmatism so that you will be happier. And friends, that is death to the most important question. The the greatest question is not will you be more fulfilled in these 80 years, but will you, when you stand before God, be in Christ or out of him? And and much of our church culture is actually feeding self-righteousness than causing people to despair of themselves so that they will look outside of themselves to Christ. And listen, let me just let you into the idolatry of pastors. We want people to come to our churches. And so, it's, and I'm not, I'm not trying to act like a victim here or anything or like itself, but it's not easy to get up and tell people every week, you're a sinner and your holy hope is Christ. 
But that's exactly what every person and Christian needs to hear over and over and over again. Now, we got to apply it. We can't just be curmudgeons. I get all that. There's a thousand other things I can say, but you don't want this sermon to go to two o'clock, so just leave it at that. We need the gospel clearly preached. And, and, and so when you, move, when, you go to, when you go to Fort Lewis, you go to Fort Campbell, you go to Fort Bragg, you go to Fort Drum, God bless you in the wintertime. When you go... <laughs> Don't pick a church because everybody's cool and hip and pretty on the worship team. And because the experience is relevant. Don't, don't do that. The best place for you may be some dusty, awkward, sort of silly place where there's a bunch of strange, peculiar people who aren't cute in jeans and don't sing all the fancy songs, but they love Jesus and they know the gospel. I'm dismounting from my hobby horse now and I'm returning to the rest of the sermon. (laughs) Verse four. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That's one of the more important sentences that Paul writes in the New Testament. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who... This is the hope for us. Christ is the end of the law. What does the end mean? Well, in one sense, it can mean that it's the termination, that, that, that it's, it, the, the law is over done with. But in another sense, it can mean also like the goal, the culmination. It's the thing to which it points to, that it's leading us to. Which of those two meanings does Paul mean here? I think there's a little bit of both in it. In one sense, the reign or the rule or the, think of it this way, the jurisdiction of the law ends with Christ. But that doesn't mean that the law has no role in the New Testament believers. So I grew up right on the Mexican border, and auto theft was a huge deal on the Mexican border because if you could steal a car and get it to Mexico, the American police have no jurisdiction in Mexicali, Mexico. So I remember one time we had a car that was stolen, and it was close to my 16th birthday, and I was going to inherit that car, and all of a sudden it was gone, and we called the police hey, our car is gone, and they're, you know, it's like on the other end, they're like, is he driving away right now? No, it's, we just got home and it's gone. Oh, I'm sorry, sir, it's in Mexico by now. <laughs> I'm sorry, call your insurance, not the police. You understand that we have no jurisdiction in another country. So in a sense, the law has no jurisdiction in declaring us guilty anymore because Christ has come to fulfill the law for us but that doesn't mean the law has no role. So let's, let's read a few verses here about the role of the law. So Robert read for us from Matthew chapter 5. Let's just read that again. Matthew 5 verse, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. 
I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus is saying that, in that sense, clearly the law is not ended, but he's come to fulfill it. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 24, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Friends, that's a weighty sentence. So Jesus is saying here that we need a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. That's sobering. So what's our hope then? We need a righteousness because none of us can fulfill the law on ourselves. We need a righteousness outside of the law. Let's look at Galatians chapter 3, another, another description of, of, of what Christ has done for his people in regards to God's holy standard, which is the law. Galatians 3 verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So if there was a law that could have given life, then righteousness would indeed be by. But, but Paul is telling us there that the law was never intended to produce righteousness. It's meant to be, well, he'll tell us. Let's read. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, verse 23, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Okay, so think of it this way. This may be a bit of a crude analogy. And no analogy is perfect. But I, I, as, I, as I read this text, I think it's helpful. This is the role of the law. Those of you that have big brothers can understand this. I had a big brother, and he would sometimes, you know, harass me and beat me up. And he would, when we were wrestling, and he had enough, then he would just pin me down and make me say something like uncle or, you know, Todd, you're the greatest or whatever, you know, or I'm going to give you, you know, all of my cookies next time mom makes some or something. I would have to submit to him. He would hold me down in a position of submission until I stopped fighting and wrestling. He, he made me kind of tap out. And that's, that's, that's a kind of picture that Paul is saying here is that the law is meant to subdue us, to pin us down, not so that we would keep flailing, thinking that we can wrestle with God's righteousness from him and stand before him and say, look at how good I wrestled my own righteousness, but it pins us down and makes us cry uncle, which is actually Christ, the gospel. That's the, that's the, the role of the law, to bring us to a point where we cannot we realize that we cannot fulfill the law ourselves and it makes us look up and cry mercy. And that's what Paul says in, in, Romans, in Romans chapter three. Go to Romans chapter three in our, our text, Romans chapter three. He says that this law, verse 21, 
Actually, let's look at verse 19. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. In other words, it, it, it levels the playing field. The law, the obedience, the, the holiness of God is displayed in this Old Testament. And all of us, Jew and Gentile, all of us, our mouths are shut before God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, verse 21, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although, here's the key phrase, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So now this righteousness that God gives doesn't come through law and obedience to the law. But the law was actually pointing to it. And what was it pointing to? Verse 22, he answers it for us. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, made right by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Friends, do you see that paragraph answers the dilemma? How can we be reconciled to a holy God? Through faith in Jesus. And what does our faith in Jesus do? Go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Our faith in Jesus. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God. That's one of the sweetest sentences in the whole Bible. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Listen to verse 3. How has he done that? How has he set you free from the, from the demands of the law, the just requirements of God's holiness? For God has done, verse 3, what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. Listen to verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but to the Spirit. So, what's that verse saying? I know we went over it a few months ago. It's saying that the law was pinning, let's summarize where we are. The law was pinning us down. Not to produce in us a man-made righteousness, but to produce in us a God-inspired sense of futility and failure so that we would not look inside of ourselves, but outside of ourselves and cry for mercy. And when we cry for mercy, which is a gift that God enables us to do, then we have faith, we believe in Jesus who obeyed the law perfectly. Jesus didn't need to be held down by the law. Jesus wasn't fighting with the law. Jesus was perfectly obeying the law and then laid down his life as a sacrifice, not for his breaking of the law, but for our breaking of the law and rose again in victory over sin, death, and the grave. And now, this is what Romans 8 verse 4 is saying, he not only takes the punishment for our law breaking on the cross but he gives us the righteousness his fulfillment of the law is credited to us it's given to us and now righteousness back to verse 4 of Romans 10 for Christ is the end of the law he satisfies the law he fulfills the law he is the end of the law he brings its jurisdiction to an end and now not only does he take the punishment for the law but he gives righteousness his righteousness his perfect righteousness which is what we need before a perfect God to all who believe <laughs> friends 
That is gloriously good news. As I end, just, just a, a, few, a few thoughts as to what this should produce in us. Friends, does this not crush legalism? Don't think of the legalism of the Jew in the Old Testament. Think of ours. Think of the ways we're prone to it. Think of the ways that we're prone to, to categorize ourselves above other, other human beings. Should, doesn't this crush legalism? Shouldn't this produce in us a kind of humility towards other people? A humility before God, but then a kind of humility towards other people. Come on, I pray that the Holy Spirit has been revealing to each of us how we so quickly forget all of this, but don't we tend to give ourselves grace for the ways that we forget the gospel, but we judge severely other people for the ways they forget the gospel? Are you the only person that does that, or am I just the only horrible Christian in the crew? Shouldn't this kind of, just a a grace for, a, a, a radical a radical, compassionate grace for people. Not, not a kind of wimpiness where we say, oh, anything goes, but a kind of broken-hearted compassion for one another because we all know how prone we are to seek to justify ourselves. And we all need to be reminded of the fact that Christ alone is the culmination of the righteousness of God and he gives, he doesn't, isn't just the righteousness, but he gives the righteousness of God for all that believe. So friends, think about it this way. And this is the last thing I wanna say. For those of you that are despairing of some residual sin in your life and you're trusting in Jesus, know that the righteousness of Christ is yours. The obedience of Jesus is yours. It's yours. He's made you his. That doesn't mean that you don't have some sanctification and some working out with fear and trembling your salvation, but it means that you are justified. You, you, let me put it to you this way. You can never be more loved by God if you're in Christ than you are right now. You can never be less loved by God than you are right now if you're in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, if you're not trusting in him, your only hope to be reconciled to a holy God is Christ. Let's pray. Lord, take take this truth that Christ is the end of, of the law, the culmination, the only answer to the only true dilemma that we have. Take this truth, I pray, and apply it to our hearts. For believers in here, Lord, humble us. Humble us. We're so torn. We're so quickly, we're so quickly distracted by secondary things by earthly matters. Lord, remind us that our greatest need is to be reconciled to you, and if we're in Christ, that has been done, and that we must and can and should live from that, and that should produce in us humility and compassion and grace. And for my friends that are in this room that don't know that, came in not knowing that, Lord, maybe seeking to justify themselves, maybe trying a new church, maybe committing to 
some sort of resolution of self-improvement. Lord, take those misdirected desires and, and change them into futility and let them see that their only hope is Christ. And let them turn from trusting in themselves and to put their hope in Him so that they can be reconciled to you through His righteousness and not their own. Lord, I pray that you do this for our good, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.